It was really somewhat easy to get to. We knew we wanted to be veterinarians, but finding our place in it feels really hard. People can't support what you can't articulate. Welcome to Vet Life Reimagined. Today, I have Dr. Emily Tincher, a second-generation veterinarian. After vet school, Dr. Emily practiced emergency medicine. She was curious about a career path outside of clinics, but it took some time to figure out what she wanted next. She has been involved up to a national level in the Veterinary Business Management Association. In 2021, she became president of the board of directors for the Veterinary Leadership Institute. In the same year, she joined Nationwide where she is now the Senior Director of Pet Health. In the first part of this episode, Dr. Emily gives a beautiful masterclass in how to figure out your ideal career path in veterinary medicine as she described her own journey. Dr. Emily also has a passion for advancing the spectrum of care for pets and their families. So we discuss some of the research that Nationwide has performed and some very practical understandings and tools to better approach this with pet families. I think this conversation is so useful to all of us. So let's get to the wise Dr. Emily Tincher. When did you know that you wanted to get into veterinary medicine? Uh, I... <laughs> It's a fun question. I love looking at the stats of how young many people, not all of our colleagues, but many people decide that they want to be veterinarians. And I joke a little bit that maybe in the womb is the answer uh, because both of my parents are veterinarians. And uh, probably the real answer is, I think I was three or four, one of their pet families that was uh, in the room, my mom was examining their dog and the woman who was in the exam room asked me, uh, are you going to be a veterinarian when you grow up just like your mom and dad? And I just said, yes. <laughs> and I don't ever remember looking back after that. Although where my place was in veterinary medicine has been quite a journey. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is kind of where I start leading to next. So you are a fellow Auburn DVN. So you, you ended up going to Auburn. War Eagle. Yes, War <laughs> Eagle. And, and so when you were going into vet school, did you have an idea of how you might practice veterinary medicine? And did that change throughout vet school? It did a lot. I uh, worked at my parents' practice growing up. And then while I was in undergrad, I worked at an equine ambulatory hospital in Lexington, Kentucky. So a lot of repro work and some sales and uh, lameness work. I'm a horseback rider. And so I thought, oh, I should at least explore what I want to be an equine vet. And uh, while I loved that job, it was really hard work. I loved it. I learned so much. There was a day in February uh, that I just recall being like, I cannot be this cold. I just can't do it. Um, and I want horses to continue to be my happy place. I didn't, I, it took me a while to reflect on that. I think I did a lot of equine things in vet school, still thinking maybe that would be my path. But ultimately it was just, it was weather that weather and, and kind of how I wanted to live my life, not just as a veterinarian, but the, the surrounding things that I decided horseback riding would be my hobby despite doing, I, I think that was a surprise to a lot of my classmates because I was heavily involved in uh, equine clubs and things throughout that school. I think the most important thing that I did personally was look at it to say, 
vet school is going to be my time to figure out how to be the best professional that I can be and explore everything that's out there. So I tried research. It was not for me personally. (laughs) Uh, I tried learning more about specialties and decided I did not want to do a residency um, after first year. I knew that I was interested in emergency medicine. So I got a, a job at Auburn working in the ICU as a assistant while I was there, which I loved and learned so, so much, especially from the technicians that were there. Um, and I joined the Veterinary Business Management Association, which I would eventually become a national leader in that organization, a student-run organization, and discovered a love for several things. I discovered that I really like working collaboratively with others that are high achievers, uh, and I that kind of takes place multiple multiple ways in my career path. I discovered I really like learning about problems at a local level and then trying to solve them systemically at a national or a global level. Uh, And I discovered that I really don't like working necessarily independently without that that kind of diverse cross-functional type of team. So for example, when like putting that into place, when I worked full-time clinically in emergency medicine, I knew I would not, besides being very bad at staying up, I've never been a night owl. I know it would not be a very good overnight ER doctor. Like that wouldn't serve what I was interested in. So I combined all of those things in working at a specialty ER practice in a clinical setting, and then now combine them in a very different way in a non-clinical role. I decided, I think I'm unusual. There are those of us out there, but I did decide even before leaving vet school because of my involvement with the Veterinary Business Management Association, I wanted to work in a non-clinical role within three to five years after graduating. I'm so I'm so curious. And by the way, I can relate on quite a few in there. One, I'm not a night owl either. So yeah, <laughs> emergency was like night emergency was not going to be for me. But I'm so curious because that that seems very, very insightful with the you know, as you're working within this business club in vet school, you are able to understand, wow, I like to look at a problem locally and try to solve that systemically. Like, what did you do in this club that allowed you to be able to to come to that realization? I'm curious. Oh, gosh, I would (laughs) love for it to be as uh, insightful and simple as I made it sound, but it was the serious process. So, Um, it was, and I still, to some extent, don't know what I want to do when I grow up. I, I made a habit of trying to do more of what I like and less of what I don't like. And to be able to articulate it in that way, it's taken me years to to be able to get there, to be fair. I think, uh, one of my best friends, Dr. Maggie Canning was a classmate of mine and also works in a non-clinical role full-time and, we kind of, especially after graduating, would say like, okay, it was really somewhat easy to get to. We knew we wanted to be veterinarians, but finding our place in it feels really hard. And so how do we, how do we figure out knowing, you know, some of the more straightforward paths that exist, even to a non-clinical role to be able to say, okay, I want to work in a non-clinical role. Personally, I love Another thing I discovered with the VBMA is I really love the business side of things and I enjoy working on 
business sustainable practices. So for me, I find it much more interesting to work in industry for a for-profit on things that are sustainable as opposed to a nonprofit or working for an association. And again, that's like a lot, a series of reflection. And and so Maggie and I would uh, talk to each other on our way home from work during, you know, the first couple of years after we graduated and feel lost, feel like, what the heck, how do we decide what it is that we want to do? We know it's so easy to say, I want to be a vet. And then you get into vet school and you're like, okay, now, now what do I want to do? What's my, what's my place in veterinary medicine? How do you sort through that? And besides talking to each other and reading professional books and, um, and then falling off the bandwagon doing that, because I much prefer fiction reading um, <laughs> and, and listening to podcasts and, and listening to things outside of veterinary medicine. Uh, I think for us, what really helped me was I devoted the time. I, got really serious about figuring out what it was I wanted to do next in a full-time clinical role. And I took a whole year while I worked in full-time emergency practice and said, okay, once a week for one to two hours, and that's all, I will do things like explore career paths, including things that are totally outside of veterinary medicine and say like what things resonate with me and what things don't. I will make sure that I'm not falling behind with technology or business practices. And I'm going to just learn things. And that was really, or I'll work on my resume or I'll apply to jobs during that. And that was really helpful for me to understand and kind of get to this process of like three things. What is the content of work that I like? What are the people or like traits of people that I like working with? And then what are the ways of working that I enjoy? And so once I identified that, all of my career has been about how do I keep reflecting and editing? Because those things change for me. Many of those things change for me. And then just kind of shifting my career towards sometimes things that don't exist or or a less straightforward uh, path than, you know, going into a professional services type field field veterinarian role I knew was not of interest to me. So how did I figure out uh, if that's the most straightforward path into industry, how do I find a, a less less common one and make it happen? <laughs> this is like a masterclass. This is fantastic. <laughs> uh, what what great tips of and and even the simply but perfectly put is that I did a little bit more of what I liked and a little bit less of what I didn't like. And and with those even small adjustments, you start to learn just a little bit more and, and guide you on your, your own path. So I really, really appreciate that. So you had a little taste of nationwide kind of earlier on. So you, you were a field consultant there for a while before you actually became full, like, I guess, full-time with nationwide. Mm-hmm. So was that one of your experiments, there we go, one of your experiments that you were kind of taking to see if you liked a different aspect? Yeah. The the first couple of years after I graduated, even during my internship, and then um, while I worked full-time in emergency medicine, I was experimenting. It's like exactly as you, I don't think I've described it that way, but I like (laughs) it a lot. Like, what are the things, how do I identify what the things are that I like and don't like in that non-clinical setting? And build off of what I had done as a student. And so some of those things looked like writing, uh, writing articles, which uh, I can do and are sometimes part of my job now, but I don't love it. And I did not, I decided that is not what I want to do 
a significant part of my job. I tried presenting back to Maggie. She and I uh, applied and I will forever be grateful that the ABMA gave us an opportunity as new grads to speak at the ABMA convention and have our first national conference the year after we graduated from vet school. And just having some experience speaking and and working through it, having mentors provide feedback uh, when the opportunity arose for me to do that on a part-time but more consistent basis with Nationwide as a a field veterinarian, which is now we have six part-time roles that speak at vet schools on our behalf in our student educational program, and we partner with the VBMA. So back to that very foundational experience as a student where I got to know this team and our previous chief veterinary officer, Dr. Carol McConnell, who had the insight to be the founding sponsor. And next year, it'll be 20 years that we've sponsored the VBMA. That's how I got to know Nationwide at first as a student leader. And then as a field veterinarian, I was like, oh, this is great. Really enjoy presenting and talk to my then boss at the time, Dr. McConnell, and said, like, I want to do more of these things full time. And uh, they didn't have a role available at Nationwide at that time. So she was really a great mentor for me and helped me with some job opportunities that I applied for, many of which I applied for and didn't get before one stuck. And then I eventually had a role that was uh, a great first fit, my first a full-time industry role at IDEX working on the university team. How did you like working with students? I really enjoy working with students. Like the the energy and excitement that students bring is just so infectious. And I don't get to work with students as much in my role now. I have uh, an awesome team that manages and runs our college program now. I get to work with them probably a little bit more directly through my role on the Veterinary Leadership Institute Board of Directors. So we we have a couple of flagship programs, and one of them is the Veterinary Leadership Experience. So we have students from across the U.S. and some global universities come and join us for a, a week on experiential learning and leadership. And it's just uh, just always leaves so full of energy and excitement about our profession, so grateful for students for um, for helping those of us that have been out for even even not that long uh, kind of maintain that excitement. Is that the program that, and it, it may not be a partnership with AVMA, but I hear uh, Marcy Kirk talk about the program so much. Is that is that the same? Yeah. Program? So, so VLE is sponsored. We've been sponsored by the AVMA for a long time. And um, Marcy came, she was part of our first class of our, our second program the Veterinary Leadership Institute's Trek. And so VLE is mostly focused on students and those who work in academia. And our Trek event is much smaller. And it's for 25 hours of race-approved CE for veterinary professionals. So technicians, veterinarians, we've had folks from everything ranging from small animal general practice and ownership to associates, specialty, industry, equine. So we've had a really cool range of people and it's purposely meant to be really small and an intimate event, kind of acknowledging and taking the principles that we work on in VLE to the next level of how do you live your most uh, sustainable, most excited, best kind of life as a veterinary professional. 
So I, when I saw that on your, your LinkedIn, the, the Veterinary Leadership Institute, I thought that was really, really cool. So how, how did you discover it and what have you learned from, you know, being the president of this, you know, organization that really focuses on bringing skills to help us be better leaders? Yeah, I got to attend the veterinary leadership experience as a student, as part of the National VBMA board, and just learned and I think appreciated the importance of things like emotional intelligence, self-awareness and self-management and relationship management and how to work more effectively within a team setting. And those are lifelong skills to practice. And uh, what I love about the practical application and and knowing that people learn best in experiential settings and have providing a safe place to do that uh, while we're on site is really great. I think the thing that keeps me coming back to the Veterinary Leadership Institute being involved as a facilitator and as a leader uh, in the organization is that those skill sets can be transformative. They're just they're just a, you know, a, a basic level there in person. It's it's a, a lifelong goal to continue working on them. But I really love spending time around other people who are working on them, who challenge me to, to be my best person and to be my authentic self. Um, it's just uh, the folks that want to work on those skills are really good for me uh, and energizing for me. So selfishly, it's really great for my own personal development. And I just love watching and seeing the aha moments from participants that come and join us and then share their experiences of how much it's been impactful for their careers as well. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I completely agree. I think these are our life skills that no matter where you are, whether you're veterinary medicine or not, right? It, totally. They can be really helpful in just making us better humans and just, you know, better leaders in general. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's great that you're able to do that and and then also work for Nationwide uh, as well. And you, you've actually, you've been with Nationwide for a while and I've been able, you probably didn't know, but I've watched you give presentation at conferences and and I feel like you're, you're very much a, at least to me, a, a face of Nationwide when it comes to like the veterinary events and things like that. So you've had several roles within the company and, and now you're a senior director of pet health. So what has been your adventure, just kind of learning about yourself, what you're interested in and, you know, coming into something about, you know, pet insurance, which my guess is if you asked you know, your earlier self, you never would have thought you would go into pet insurance, but I'm curious to hear your, your journey and what you've kind of found that you've liked. Yeah, I am so grateful. I have the coolest job, I think at Nationwide. So get, get to work with a great team, our pet health team. And I wasn't necessarily looking for a change when I was at, um, at IDEX previously, I enjoyed my role. I knew I wanted to work more strategically, and I wanted to manage people full-time. And so uh, when my boss, our chief veterinary officer, said that they had a position open at Nationwide, I had some questions, like, what are what are the things that we might be working on? I had gotten to work with him a little bit as a field vet, and I knew that he was someone I identified as I would like to work with him and learn from him more. 
And I have, speaking of like, you know, that work that I did of like, what do I want to do? And what do I want to do more of? I think it's been helpful for me to identify, like, if there are people that I want to work more with, like, I try to take the time and like, write that down so that whenever something does come up, I can make sure that I don't let it pass me by, even if I'm, you know, not looking for for a change at the time. So he said, you know, we're really working on how do we sustainably, what we now have um, kind of come to the phrasing of how to, how we sustainably provide more care to more pets and having worked previously in my, my parents' practice, again, in rural Kentucky in their general practice all the way, which I would consider uh, more basic to intermediate level care. And then in very high level advanced care, we had a, a cyber knife for radiation therapy at my, at one point, greater than 40 doctor specialty emergency hospital, 11, 11 of us were ER doctors, uh, kind of worked across a range of a spectrum of care. And so that background for me, I really loved the opportunity and have enjoyed the opportunity at Nationwide to say, okay, how do we embrace the philosophy of what we now call a spectrum of care so that we can, from a clinical perspective, really embrace evidence-based medicine? How do we know what works and what doesn't work? And then from a communications, bringing in the, the stuff that I love from the Veterinary Leadership Institute, how do we meet pet families where they are and acknowledge that sometimes we might not choose the things that they would choose, but that can be okay. And what I love at Nationwide is that that fits our business model. How do we get pet families who are, who are actually our customers, veterinarians aren't, but but our, our members or the people that have a pet insurance policy are our pet families. So what, how do we help their pets get the best possible outcome without having to raise the cost of their premiums? So with them having the uh, lower cost of care that meets that best possible outcome. And some people want to do everything. And we we have a diversified insurance products for that. If you, you're the kind of person who wants to do everything, we have comprehensive options. If you're the kind of person who wants some basic help, uh, just in kind of, I think the way many of us think about insurance, those catastrophic like ER type things, we have more limited products that support that as well. And so I really love it. It matches up with what I think is, uh, again, back to systemic problems. Like I think the affordability of veterinary care is one of the biggest challenges that we have in our profession. And so I love that I get to work on trying to make that a little bit more sustainable and keep the whole pet family at the center of how we think about that every day. I, You know, I mentioned to this to you before that I... I see the potential and the need for pet insurance. And when I see numbers like, and feel free to correct me if this is wrong, but I think less than 4% of pets are insured. And so, I mean, wow, there's such an opportunity to increase (laughs) that access to care to back to challenges in veterinary medicine. Some of that is the, when it gets to the financial conversation, right? It no matter the background, if something surprising pops up, the, those bills. It, this is not the same as, as human insurance, where it's at least in the United States, it, it's very normal, and you know we're we're used to paying very small copay, and then we go home, and which but it's different um, with pets, and so there. I feel like there's such an opportunity. So, what do you think are some barriers to Insuring pets, 
And what are some things that you think, especially since our audience is primarily, you know, the veterinary audience, what are some things that we as the veterinary audience might be able to do to, to help improve that number? Yeah, so it it's interesting because the the percent of US owned cats and dogs that are insured uh, being around 2 to 3% has been pretty stable while the pet health insurance industry is growing about 20% year over year. So just the number of owned pets are increasing at that rate. But you're right, there's there's a lot of opportunity and I think different health insurance companies, pet health insurance companies have different philosophies. For us personally, we look at that and say, I think one of the reasons why that percent hasn't grown as much as we might have thought and, and nationwide, nationwide has always kind of been the, the money behind VPI or, or the underwriters um, to get insurance about it. But we are the oldest pet health insurer in the US over 40 years of protecting pets. And we've innovated in different types of products over the years. But I think if you look across pet insurance companies, you'll see a lot of the product offerings are very similar. It's a fairly comprehensive product in most cases that is a percent of reimbursement over you know the, the things that are coverable on the policy. And some people want that. It's, a, it's again, a pretty comprehensive product. Some people want that. Tricky bit is that as cost of veterinary care rises and as the level of advanced options increases, everything from where our brains go to chemotherapy and radiation to even just the cost of providing good quality of care, a intermediate to advanced level care for a vomiting dog has gone up pretty considerably in the last decade or so with different medications, with more accessibility to diagnostics, things like ultrasound, things like in-house blood work. Those are all great things to have, and they help contribute to an increasing cost of care. So if we go back to different insurance products, you know, if someone is looking for and can afford a, a more comprehensive level of care, it's important to have options that support that. I think that option, that those percent of invoice products that all of us pretty much have, they are exciting and interesting to some people and affordable to some pet families, but not everyone. And so we launched uh, earlier this year, a new product that has over 200 different kind of ways that pet families can personalize the care to the level, the level of coverage that they want fits their goals and their values and their financial resources too. So our philosophy is to say, everyone is not the same. How do we meet them where they are and acknowledge that maybe those products that we've had for a long time just aren't the right fit for everyone. We've, we've been meeting the needs for, for some people, but not for everyone. So how do we help more families provide just a little bit more to their care to their pets in a sustainable way? And one of the things that I really appreciate with Nationwide is Nationwide has done a lot of research. And I mean, I still remember, again, watching you give presentations at conferences, even like the Veterinary Innovation Summit, where the one that I really remember is the one where you were able to look at different types of pet owners coming into a practice and kind of like their money mindset or how they wanted things mm -hmm. 
proposed to them. So some like really didn't want you to give like the most expensive option first or something, but mm-hmm. you're really able to dissect that. And it sounds like now looking at this product, um, you know, you're, you're building upon this research to mm-hmm. gen- genuinely understand how can we better help? How can we find truly what is the most targeted option when it comes down to the very family behind the pet? But I, I think also you've looked at <laughs> different breeds and being able to also see like what comes with that breed. I know we were kind of chatting an email about that one as well. So, you know, mm-hmm. just kind of reflecting over all this research that nationwide has done and, and you've had to present upon. So I'm assuming you, you know it pretty well. Yeah. What are what are some of your favorite maybe aha moments that you you've seen within this research? Yeah, I love that question. So I'll <laughs> I'll take it in two parts. The first part you mentioned our communications uh research that uh, we partnered with Rehavior, uh previously Mind Genomics Advisors to try and say that our research objective was how do we uncover the subconscious drivers behind the level of care and the type of care that pet families are looking for? And kind of saying there are some limitations in survey work. A lot of times people, back to that percent of, of, of pets insured, if you ask pet families, over 50% of them say that they would purchase pet insurance yet only two to 3% of them do. So we know that there's a, a say do gap, if you will. So, so traditional survey work has some serious limitations, especially in veterinary medicine, where we're so emotionally bonded to our pets. And so this work with behavior, we, it's a different type of research that I won't get into too much for the, for the sake of brevity, but we're working on publishing it in JAVMA, hopefully later this year, early next year. Um, and so basically, again, like, how do we understand the level of care pet families are looking for? You mentioned one of the things that was a top aha moment for us was a couple of messages. So ultimately, there, there are three groups of people that were pretty consistent between demographics. So race, ethnicity, economic status, so uh, like household income, geographic location, gender, none of those things played a huge role in putting people into these three groups. Instead, it was how do they view the level of care that they're looking for with a a rough naming for each of them being a cost-focused group, which we would probably imagine are out there. We we remember those folks a lot. A convenience-focused group who might be willing to pay more um, but their but time is is their top premium thing, and then a group that's really focused on choice. So how can they understand what their options are? Really, really want to know about the evidence based medicine, and then there are some nuances between those. But all of those groups, what I think is so interesting, all of those groups really believe that their pet's health is equally important to them. And so I think sometimes us as veterinary professionals, we can say, but like, that's not possible. If they're focused on cost, how can they possibly be focused on their pet's health? Well, I'm telling you that those pet families do not see a dichotomy between that. They see that they have other thing, other priorities going on in with their finances, but they still view their pet's health to be very, very important to them. And then the other message, which you mentioned, that pet families all universally Every single group very strongly reacted against having the most expensive option offered to them first. Yet we are trained 
uh, in communications training. I've been there in lots of it. Um, and I used to do this myself before before re- a combination of this research and understanding some of the first choice biases that exist and have mostly been studied in human health care. That's really can be a challenge for pet families. They, they really can uh, feel upset about that when we offer them the first, the most expensive option first, if that's the primary reason that we, you know, feel like we have to push the most advanced level of care. So those are big aha moments there for us, I think, as vet healthcare team members is different motivators behind the level of care that they seek doesn't mean pet families don't care about their pet's health. We have to to try and take that in and trying to think about how can we meet them where they are with the communication techniques that instead of just leaning on treating everybody the same way. It's not efficient and it it really can be frustrating for pet families if we do. And then you're, you also mentioned uh, some of the work that we've done with our pet health data. And so switching to the, if we just think about like the components of a spectrum of care, there's how do we identify pet family goals, values, and resources? How do we identify the evidence-based medicine, the options that we have to give them? And then how do we communicate it? So we talked about kind of communicating it and what their goals and values are. Evidence-based medicine is so important. We don't have enough of it in in veterinary medicine. We don't know very much about the outcomes of the treatment that we provide. And so what we've tried to do is say, okay, well, we have, you know, 40 plus years of data. We insure over 1.2 million pets actively. How can we use the millions of years of pet data that we have? And we have a really awesome pet health analytics and insights team uh, that I'm grateful to be part of that allows us to say, okay, let's, let's, um, and this is not my, my skill set is not the data analysis. (laughs) Uh, So how do, how do our teammates analyze that? And then how do we, with our, the medical expertise say, okay, let's understand what the data is showing us and make some specific recommendations. So we've published six white papers, uh, most recently some about uh, diseases in brachycephalic dogs. And then to make those just more accessible because the white papers are great, but they're also a little dense and scientific. Even for vet healthcare teams, they are they can be a lot to look at. And so we created the Pet Health Zone, which uh, we launched the AVMA convention a couple of months ago. And right now it, it includes our our top insured 55 purebred, crossbred, and mixed breed dogs. And so it doesn't have every dog breed yet. And it doesn't have It doesn't have cats yet, but it will uh, by the beginning of next year. And we'll be adding more breeds as well to say, okay, for each of these dogs, what are some really cool things that we can teach people? Because ultimately this is for pet families and for vet healthcare teams to to help educate pet families. But in a fun way, we, we found that education isn't always the most exciting topic for a pet family sitting in your lobby. And so how do we help them get excited to learn more things about their breed or breed they're considering adopting or purchasing, hopefully in advance if, if they're talking to you or thinking about adding a pet to the family? And then what are the health risks that they should be most concerned about? Instead of focusing on the most common condition, because in dogs that would, you know, mostly be skin and ears and GI for everyone, uh, we said, what are the highest risk conditions? And right now it's three for each of those breeds. What are the highest risk conditions that specifically this pet should be worried about? So whether it's a Labrador 
a mature adult Labrador that is cranial cruciate ligament rupture is a top concern, um, or whether it's a senior dachshund where intervertebral disc disease might be the highest risk that we're worried about. How can we help pet families understand what might be coming down the road for their dog as they mature? What are some of the signs that they could look for for early detection or also maybe even prevention? Things like for both of those, avoiding obesity is a a really important, helpful one. And then if you're worried your pet might be experiencing that, like what are some of the things that might happen at the vet to just help prepare them for the conversation that the vet healthcare team is going to give them? And then what might it cost? So we have a kind of our first phase out there. What are the first 30 days look like when those high-risk conditions are diagnosed? We have some exciting planned kind of next steps for what the the cost estimates will look like for chronic conditions because, you know, things like diabetes, 30 days might not be the most helpful thing. Um, and so we're, we have next steps that are are coming for that for things like surgical versus not as well. But hearing that feedback from vet healthcare teams and pet families, that it's a, a helpful and more both fun and digestible resource. I love that. I love how unique and creative and how it can be used as a conversation tool as well. The other thing that I really like about being able to bring people on this podcast from so many, you know, different perspectives and backgrounds is you, you might have a different glimpse on the profession as a whole and where you can offer some maybe words of wisdom or something that you would love to be able to, to say to the veterinary profession. So I, I kind of want to open it up for you. And what do you think are some good words of wisdom for us? I think we have amazing people that work in this profession. I wouldn't be here in the role that I'm in, in a a really fun position without the opportunity to learn from people from all different uh, phases of their career. I've been so humbled (laughs) throughout my, I just graduated seven years ago. So I've been so humbled by people being willing to give their time and expertise. If you just ask a couple targeted questions or ask to coffee or something at a conference. Not everyone has the time every time, but I try and repay that as well by by passing that forward. I think when you don't know what you want to do, it can be really hard. I, I recently had that great opportunity to be part of a women's leadership development program at Nationwide right now. And one of the leaders, so not not inside veterinary medicine, which is one of my things I recommend, try learn from other professions too. We have great people. Um, it's really great to learn from an, an outside-in perspective. She said to us, people can't support what you can't articulate. So if you can't articulate what you want to do, I've, most of my roles have been, I've been, I've found them by articulating what I want to do or by somehow through my network. If you can't articulate what you want to do, that's okay. It's really normal, especially if you want to do something that's maybe a little bit less common in our career, but you do have to take the time. I frequently have people reach out through various social medias of like, I want to do something that's in industry. And I'm like, okay, do you know what? (laughs) Like, Do you know what you like to do? Do you know what you don't like to do? I think it's really important. And, And if you don't even know where to start, that's okay. But just the reflection time of saying, 
I like these things and I don't like these things. And um, this is what it could like look like in a role. I would love to say it's really easy and straightforward to get there. But for me, it took a lot of time and that is okay. Hopefully it gives you someone out there permission to spend and invest that time on yourself. You're worth it. If you want to, you want to do something more straight forward, i.e. you, there are lots of people that you can see doing the thing that you want to do. Maybe it will take you a little bit less time to be able to articulate uh, and have someone else help sponsor what you are looking to do. But if you don't, A, that's okay. It's normal. I still don't know what I want to do 10 years from now. (laughs) I'll just keep working on my process too. Um, But if you do uh, need to do that work, do it and then, and then talk about it uh, because it's a, it's a really great giving profession and, and one where I think we, we try and help each other out a lot. I completely agree. And just like you said, giving it forward for thank you for coming to be on this podcast to share this. I've really loved this conversation. So I, I just have a final few questions to wrap it up for fun. And the first question is, what is your favorite gift that you have received or that you have gone and gotten for yourself? Favorite gift that I have received? The first thing that pops into my head is two of my classmates and friends, uh, Maggie, who I mentioned, and Dr. Kristen Wolner, both also, both in non-clinical roles. When I got my role here at Nationwide, they gave me a pair of shoes, birdie shoes, which are very comfortable flats, but they are also, they had some flair, like they're cheetah print. So um, <laughs> it was, it was a really thoughtful gift that they knew I'd be going to conferences and walking a lot. And so, and, you know, trying, trying to look professional, but feel, you know, nice. So I thought it was like a a really nice way to celebrate the transition together. And I think embodies like, I would not be here without a really supportive peer group that both challenges and um, supports each other as we go forward. So that's a, that's a special one. That is. And I may have to get the the name of that shoe again from you because we are all looking for those comfortable, but you know, that you're proud to wear kind of shoes. <laughs> so yeah. I love that. That That's a really good answer. The second question that I had was, and you talked a little bit about this, but if you had to give maybe one of the top tips you would give to a veterinary student, what would be one of your top tips? Be open and try everything. If you know what you want to do, like keep that in mind, but still even um, you never know, I, you know, you, I know you completed a residency. You just never know the way that your career is going to go. Just be curious. And if you see something, if you see someone doing something that you think is cool, ask them a couple of questions about how they got there and why they're doing what they're doing. You just never know what kind of a, a surprising turn this great profession full of translational skills uh, will give to you. Yes, completely agree. Their question is, do you have anything on your bucket list that you would, you still would like to do? Oh, so many things. Um, so today's my birthday. <laughs> Spend a lot of time thinking about, um, am I orienting my time and schedule the way that I want to? I think time is the most valuable 
non-renewable resource out there. And so spending it with the people that you enjoy and spending it doing things that you enjoy, work or not related, is really important to me. And so one of the things my husband and I love to do is travel. And so we were recently in, in Europe with friends, and I would really love to go to the Spanish writing school where the Lipizzans are trained in Austria at some point. Uh, so that is horseback riding and we love to travel. And um, yeah, that is a bucket list item for me that is not at all vet med related. <laughs> that is really cool. So I did a study abroad when I was an undergrad and we and I lived in Vienna. So it, that was that's really oh, cool. cool. So yeah, I definitely <laughs> hope you get to go there. Uh, the last question is, what is something you are very, very grateful for? The people in my life. That's just like period. Uh, family is really important to me and my friends are really important to me. I'm a fierce friend. I love meeting new people and just uh, learning from people. So very grateful for the, the friends and support system that I have. Thank you for joining us on Vet Life Reimagined. Please make sure that you click the follow button on your podcast app to avoid missing one of our weekly episodes. I have a lot of wonderful episodes coming. If you would like to support this podcast, there are a few other ways that are 100% free. Give it a five-star rating and review, and then subscribe over on the Vet Life Reimagined YouTube channel. We appreciate you and all of your support. Until next time.